Hello and welcome to another episode of Disastrous History. This is episode 2 of our Katrina, Hurricane Katrina series and will cover landfall in Mississippi and the storm impact in Mississippi through the dissipation of the storm up near the Great Lakes. Much of this episode is thanks to one person in particular who is literally the expert on Katrina in Mississippi, Dr. Jen Trivetti, who is a professor at the University of Delaware. She is one of my good friends and she literally wrote a book on this. So, thank you Dr. Trivetti. Just to give a refresher as to where we are, Hurricane Katrina made landfall just southeast of New Orleans near Burris, Louisiana on Monday, August 29th, 2005 at just after 6.10 a.m. After pummeling Louisiana, it traveled northeast across Chandler Sound, still at a Category 3 strength, and the eye smacked into the area just east of the Mississippi-Louisiana border at Bay St. Louis, Mississippi. What this meant in practice was that most of Mississippi got hit with the right front quadrant of Hurricane Katrina. As you'll recall from the last episode, Explainer, that meant Mississippi was subjected to the strongest portions of the hurricane for the longest amount of time. This was primarily aimed directly at Bloxy, Mississippi. Now, Bloxy is an interesting situation for a city. It sits almost entirely on a peninsula. To the south is the Gulf of Mexico, to the east is Bloxy Bay, and to the north and northwest are two lakes. What I'm saying here is Bloxy is surrounded by water on basically all sides, and if a hurricane of sufficient size were to smack it in the mouth, well, it wouldn't be good. Unfortunately, that's exactly what Hurricane Katrina did. But first, I want to set the stage for the area. We're going to talk about all the other places in Mississippi in this episode, and also touch on the tornado outbreak that Katrina spawned, because of course it did. But I want to give special attention to one of the hardest hit places in the entire incident because it gives a general overview of what southern Mississippi is like, and that's the city of Bloxy. Originally, Bloxy was founded in 1699 by French settlers. In 1720, the capital of French Louisiana was moved from Mobile to Bloxy. It was the capital of the colony until about 1722 when the capital was again moved. Now, there's a fun story to go with this move. Well, fun and uh, this is interesting because this entire podcast is about disasters and this specific episode is about a hurricane kind of way. You see, the story is, as I said in the first episode, the French moved the capital to New Orleans in an attempt to escape hurricanes because several had then hurt, hit the capital of Biloxi while they were there and, well, they were really tired of it. Now, whether or not that's true is up for debate, but it is referenced in several different sources. So after its founding... Biloxi switched from French rule to British rule, and then from British rule to Spanish rule, and then it was transferred to the United States in 1812. From then on, it became a very popular vacation spot. It also became a massively popular seafood location. Shrimping is a huge part of the Biloxi economy, as well as resort casinos. Basically, if you want to understand Biloxi, you have to understand that the city relies on the Gulf and everything that comes with it. Whether it's tourism or fishing, their livelihoods rely entirely upon that which is about to wreak havoc upon them. And that isn't just Biloxi. It is all of the Mississippi coast. All the towns up and down the Mississippi Sound rely heavily on tourism, fishing, and the natural beauty of the Gulf to bring them money and provide them with some sort of comfortable life. One thing you need to truly understand about those that live in this area is how they feel about hurricanes. They've had their fair share, they've evacuated for storms that nary turned over a chair, and they've ignored evacuations for storms that wrecked huge portions of the city. Many of the people along the Gulf Coast still hold this belief. Oh, the last couple storms weren't that bad, this one won't be bad either. 
I've made it through such and such storm, I can make it through anything. That's not to say that no one ever evacuates. Every time there's a storm and there are evacuations, thousands upon thousands evacuate the Mississippi coast to places further inland or elsewhere in, say, Bloxy that were on higher ground or even to other states. The National Weather Service and NOAA did an excellent job and do an excellent job putting out warnings and evacuation recommendations. Those in Mississippi would get the same warnings for Katrina as those in Louisiana. This will be catastrophic. The area will be uninhabitable for weeks. If you remember from the previous episode, I talked about storms. The prediction was that high-rise buildings would sway dangerously to the point of collapse. All low-rise buildings would collapse that weren't made of concrete. Some concrete buildings that were low-rise would collapse. Like, it would be absolutely catastrophic. Anyone outside exposed to the winds for too long would die. The water would be undrinkable for weeks upon weeks at end. The entire area would be uninhabitable. They got that same warning in Mississippi as those in Louisiana. And many people in Mississippi heeded those warnings. They listened, and they got out, and they stayed out. But, as per usual, there is always some that stay. And part of the problem here is the same problem I've talked about with tornadoes before. If you remember back to the tornado outbreak episodes, I talked about how frequently some people don't actually hear the siren or the warnings before the tornado hits, be it because they're working, or they are driving, or they're asleep, or whatever. The same thing happens with hurricanes. Now, hurricanes tend to have a much longer time for warnings, and the weather services do an excellent job of putting out as accurate warnings as they can, but they simply cannot get to everyone. It's just not feasible. Some people miss the warnings until it is too late, or some people hear the wrong warnings, or some people misunderstand the warnings, or they hear that it did some flooding damage and some rain in Florida and blow it off as no big deal, not knowing that just a few hours earlier, it did its absolute best to wipe New Orleans off the map. And New Orleans didn't get hit with the strongest part of the storm, as Mississippi is about to. So this all falls back into the human psychology of how they view disasters. Some people are always going to evacuate no matter what. It doesn't matter if their house was damaged or not. The chance that they could lose their home in a hurricane and they don't want to deal with that and be there and have to witness it, they will always evacuate. Some people are just, I don't want to use the word stubborn, but have pride in their home. They want to be there and have control of the situation and understand exactly what is going on, and they will stay no matter what. And some people will gauge what the warnings are, and they'll make that decision for themselves, whether or not they think that the warnings are dire enough that they need to leave, or if they think that they can stay and ride it out. And some people just don't evacuate because they can't. There are a lot of elderly folks that just don't have the resources available to get out, elderly, disabled, people that don't have vehicles, things like that. They just don't have the resources available, they don't have anywhere else to go, and they just have to stay and hope for the best. That happens a lot as well. Because that's one of the other things, is not everyone has somewhere else to go. Like, take myself for instance. If I had to evacuate from Nebraska, I could go to my parents in Indiana, or I could go literally to, I have multiple friends all over the country that I could evacuate to. But before, just a few years ago, I would never have had that option. I'd have been stuck exactly where I was, and I would have wrote it out. Some people don't have the funds. Even if they have somewhere else to go, they don't have the funds to get them there because it costs a lot of money to get a plane ticket or to pay for gas and all of that to get to somewhere else that is more safe. 
So that's a reason why a lot of people don't end up evacuating. It's not always, oh, hi, this is my house. I'm going to defend it from the storm. It's, I don't have any other options. This is the only thing I can do. And I got to be honest, if the only option you have is stay in your home and hope, I can't say that's a bad option. It's probably what I would do if I didn't have any other options. So I guess the gist of it is remember that some people didn't evacuate, but a lot of people did. And I'm going to focus on the stories of the people that didn't evacuate. I'll talk about some of the people who did, but I'm going to focus on the stories of people who didn't evacuate because they give us the eyewitness of what the storm was like. Just remember that a huge portion of the Mississippi coast did in fact evacuate away from the area and away from the storm. Some of them, it didn't matter. They'd gone hundreds of miles inland and still got hit with devastating damage from Katrina because that's just how strong the storm was. But as we get into this, just remember that a huge portion of Mississippi did evacuate, but some of them didn't evacuate for a variety of reasons that I'll get into later and I just talked about. One of those main reasons is Hurricane Camille, which I will definitely go into in a little bit. Now with all that out of the way, let's get into this. Because of the sheer size of Hurricane Katrina, the coast of Mississippi was getting hit by hurricane winds even before the eye of the storm made actual landfall in Louisiana. So they knew it was coming by 6 a.m. on Monday, August 29th, when it was you know, making landfall in Louisiana. Technically, they knew it was coming before that as most of the Mississippi Gulf Coast had ordered a mandatory evacuation on the 27th of August, but as we know in everything, mandatory is only mandatory to a point. Again, people still stayed in their homes. As I talked about earlier, a lot of this decision was based on how their house had withstood previous hurricanes. The story that comes up over and over again in Dr. Trevetti's book is my house, my parents' house, my grandparents' house withstood Hurricane Camille, and there's no way this could be worse than Camille. We will be fine. In fact, one of the big selling points for homes in and around the Mississippi coast was literally saying that the home didn't flood in Camille. For those unaware, Hurricane Camille is the second strongest hurricane to ever make landfall in the United States behind the 1935 Labor Day hurricane. Its destruction of Biloxi was nearly complete. It was a fair comparison to make. The winds in Camille were stronger. It was a Category 5 when it made landfall. And, well, it was a packed wallop. There were some massive storm surges with Camille, and it did massive damage throughout Mississippi. But unfortunately... It would be no comparison, not because Camille was way stronger. Many people knew immediately as the winds picked up to hurricane speed before the eye was anywhere near Mississippi, this was going to be nothing like Camille. Camille was small, compact, and didn't stretch nearly the width Katrina did, nor did it last nearly as long. Hurricane Katrina made its final landfall around 10 a.m. near Bay St. Louis, Mississippi. Still at Category 3 intensity, with hurricane force winds extending 103 miles from the center and tropical storm force winds extending 230 miles from the center. And real quick, I want to talk about this. The sheer size of this storm, like, it's huge. Because you hear the, oh, 103 miles from the center and think, okay, cool, numbers, and then move on. But that means that hurricane winds are basically 206 miles across. So bear with me while we do some math and put this into perspective that can truly be understood. Because if it were a video, I would just show you a picture of Hurricane Katrina as it's making landfall in Mississippi. And you can see it's the size of Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama nearly combined. So let's just do some math real quick. 
Because hurricanes are generally circular, we want to find the total area of sustained hurricane force winds. And when I sustain, say sustained hurricane force winds, I mean winds that are 70 miles per hour plus for at least two minutes. Now, Katrina had sustained winds of about 135 miles per hour at landfall in both Louisiana and Mississippi. Just remember that. So let's do the hurricane force winds first, since it's the smallest area. The formula for the area of a circle is pi r squared. So we're going to take 3.14 times 103 squared. That is an area of 33,312 square miles. Ooh, big number. But what does that do for you? That makes the hurricane wind area of Hurricane Katrina the 39th largest state. That is no joke. Imagine essentially the entire area of Indiana receiving hurricane force winds at the same time, from Fort Wayne to Evansville and from Terre Haute to Richmond. The whole state being demolished by 135 miles per hour winds. Now, in reality, that's not what is happening in Hurricane Katrina. The winds on the in the back left are going to be lower, and the winds in the front left are going to be lower, just because that's how a hurricane works. But just generally, it is hurricane force winds the entire area continuously for two minutes. For my non-American listeners, that's like all of Portugal being covered by a single storm. All of it. That's all of Sierra Leone in Africa. But just for fun, because doing math is so, so, so fun, let's also cover tropical storm force winds. That's anything sustained over 35 miles per hour. That's a 230-mile radius, so 3.14 times 230 squared. That is a whopping 166,106 square miles. That makes it the third largest state, being California, beating California by 11,000 square miles. All of California. All of it, from San Diego to Redding, California receiving at least 35 mile per hour winds for at least two minutes. It's the sixth largest country in Europe, beating Norway by 18,000 square miles. The eighth largest country in South America, beating Paraguay by 9,000 square miles. Basically what I'm saying is this was a big, big, big storm, and as such it was going to pack a massive wallop. And pack a wallop it did. The storm surge was estimated at 28 feet high. It is estimated because all of the storm surge gauges were once again broken by the storm. Hurricane Katrina refused to be measured. It immediately swamped the entire town of Biloxi under the massive wave of water that came rushing in. Boats on the shore were picked up as if they were toys and smashed into buildings. Casino barges, only allowed to operate as casinos if they were floating on water, were shoved inland and deposited wherever they landed, be on a road or building or home, or literally anywhere. Entire buildings were ripped apart by a combination of wind and water, leaving nothing but empty slabs remaining and the debris floating away. It's not just the water that turns things into missiles. Thousands of pieces of debris were picked up and launched as flying missiles in the ridiculously powerful winds. Anything that wasn't nailed down, and some things that were, flew through the air, impaling themselves in walls, in the ground, in cars, in people. 135 mile per hour winds is a high-end EF2 tornado. Those pretty effortlessly can relocate your roof, and they only last seconds. These winds lasted literally hours. I don't know about you guys, but that sounds like hell. And for anyone who chose not to evacuate, it was. One particular story from Mississippi jumped out at me. The story of Douglas to Sylvie. Douglas and his wife had decided to stay in Biloxi with his in-laws and his daughter. They moved to his in-laws' house as they had for every storm up to that point. The house had survived every single storm, and they figured it would survive this one. So the five of them, Doug, his daughter Donna, his wife Linda, 
his mother-in-law, Nadine Gifford, and his father-in-law, Edward Gifford, huddled in the house together waiting for the storm to arrive. And arrive it did in full force. They had a perfect front row seat for it. They all huddled into the bedroom in the back of the house where DeSilvia had a good view of the bay to see where the water was. When he looked out the window, he was in shock. The water was already there. They were already worried as they could hear glass shattering everywhere and the house literally coming apart around them. And turning back around after looking out the window, he prepared to tell his family members to hold hands and get ready to swim because they would have to try and make it somewhere else. They couldn't stay where they were. It wasn't safe. He could hear his wife repeating over and over again over the sound of the wind and the rain and the water. Oh God, oh God. Then, all of a sudden, everything went down. Just as he turned around, the roof of the home collapsed, sending Distilvi tumbling into the water. He could feel water filling his lungs and fought desperately to get back to the surface and get his family out. He managed to find a pocket of air and was able to survive and swim to safety. Unfortunately, however, during the collapse, all four members of his family in the house with him would perish in the storm. This would be a regular occurrence throughout Biloxi as well as Mississippi. People who thought that the storm waters could never get to them, and then they did, and then their house collapsed. It is a story that is everywhere throughout Mississippi. But elsewhere in Mississippi, we need to talk about the National Guard, police departments, and fire departments. And I want to tell a few of their stories because they are wild. So first I want to talk about the Waveland Police Department. Now Waveland is a relatively small town of about 6,500 people located on the Gulf Coast. It sits just southwest of Biloxi. As such, it was frequently referred to as Ground Zero of Hurricane Katrina. It took the massive brunt of the storm. It was dead center, that right front quadrant, and got absolutely blasted. The vast majority of the town was completely obliterated in the storm surge and winds. And when I mean obliterated, I am not exaggerating. Entire neighborhoods were stripped down to their foundations. It was estimated 90% of the town of Wayland no longer existed after the storm came through. It looked like an EF-5 came ashore and took everything away. Like everything. Not just like a mile wide like in Joplin. In Joplin when the EF-5 came through, it did a pretty decent chunk of the town, but there were still parts of the town left. There was nothing left of Waveland. Anything that was left was ridiculously well built or extremely lucky. It was just gone. Just completely gone. One home had built to be hurricane-proof on Beach Boulevard that runs right along the shore in Waveland. As we learned from the Iroquois Theater fire, never say anything is, insert disaster here, proof. It's just asking for everything to be proven wrong. And it was. The entire house disappeared. That's, that's not a joke. It was completely blown away. Washed away, blown away, whatever leaving literally only the poured concrete foundation. Just gone. And I'm. you look at the pictures of this house, it's not, oh, you can recognize some of the wall there, oh, you can see some of the stuff there. There's nothing left. Even the sillboards to attach it to the concrete foundation are gone. Parts of the concrete foundation are gone. It is, there's nothing left. It is truly wild to look at. In total, about 50 people would lose their lives in Waveland. But, I was talking about the police department. Now, 
the department building was located about two or so miles from the shoreline, and no water had ever reached it, no matter the size of the surge. And inside that police department, the 27 members of the Waveland Police Department had taken shelter, waiting for the storm to move on so they could get out and respond to calls, start cleanup, and begin to move their city past their destructive force. It, they, literally, the entire department stayed to help respond to calls. And they felt relatively safe. Again, the station had literally never flooded. They had voted at 2 a.m. on the 9th of the 29th when the wind started to pick up if they would stay there or head to somewhere else. And they all agreed they needed to stay in Waveland. They needed to stay in the station. So they did. And unfortunately, by the morning time, that was looking to be a poor choice. The water had started to reach the steps to the police station, which was unthinkable. It hadn't happened in Camille. It had never happened before. And it just kept coming. It wasn't like the water got to the stairs and stopped. It started to go up a stair and another and another, and another. And soon it was pushing against the stores, the doors, and they were trapped inside, unable to push the doors open against the weight of the crushing water. They were literally trapped inside the station. They had put up plywood on all the windows and the doors to help prevent it from shattering the windows and allowing the rain and the wind to get in. So in order to get out, they were going to have to break through the plywood after breaking through the window. So you had to break through the window, then break through the plywood and make a big enough hole to be able to get through that hole and get out. Eventually, they were able to do so and formed a human chain to try and get to somewhere, anywhere, that wasn't in the water. They literally made a 27-person long human chain to get through the floodwaters to swim, through the floodwaters to somewhere else. Twelve of the officers managed to make it to the roof where they would stay until the storm moved further inland. Two officers who had broken off from the human chain rode out the storm sitting in the bed of a Dodge pickup truck on top of a toolbox, which they said was some of the most terrifying hours of their life. But that's not the truly crazy part of this story. That part is that, so we have 12 officers on the roof. We have two officers in the back of a pickup truck. That leaves 13 other officers unaccounted for. Where did those 13 hours spend the next six hours of Hurricane Katrina beating them to a pulp? clinging to a bush outside of the police department on the opposite side of the parking lot. That's not a joke. They literally held on to a long hedgerow bush sitting in the water for six hours. They were hit by debris flying through the air, nearly drowned multiple times by floodwaters. They were hit by debris floating through the water, you name it. And this just isn't any form of agony, because being hit by things floating by and flying through the air and the rain blowing sideways and the wind blowing dust and all that through the air is painful. But they're sitting in a parking lot full of vehicles. Those vehicles have full gas tanks, because town vehicles always top off before a storm comes in because they don't know when they'll get gas again, and if you're going to responding to calls, you need a vehicle. Which means as the water rises, the gas tanks start to leak and rupture and leak out. And... I don't know if you guys have ever had gasoline intercuts, but it is a not good feeling. As in, they're being cut by the bush that's being beaten against them and the random things being beaten against them, and they're getting gasoline and oil and other random crap that's in the floodwaters inside those cuts, and it's going to burn forever because it's bits of glass, it's bits of wood, it's bits of brick, dirt, whatever, hurtling through the air at at least 100 miles per hour. That is... Literally, I can't imagine worse than that. And that's what they were subjected to for literally hours. But 
miraculously, all 27 members of that fire, uh, police department, even all 13 that hung onto that bush, survived the storm. All 27 of them survived. Meanwhile, in Biloxi, fire station number three had seven firefighters inside. Once again, we see the specter of Hurricane Camille arising as Station 3 was built a full foot above the high water line of Camille. They never believed the water would reach the station. How could it? Camille was the worst of the worst, one of the only Category 5 hurricanes to ever hit the United States. But it did. The firefighters inside considered abandoning the station and trying to find somewhere higher to wait out the storm and the floodwaters, but a group of civilians showed up with children alongside. The firefighters then placed the civilians and children on top of the fire engines to keep them out of the water while all seven firefighters tread water for hours before the floodwaters receded enough to be able to get them out. And just think about that. This is fairly early on in the storm. Like, it's still morning time. And they're having to tread water for literally hours in floodwaters that they don't know what's in there. They don't know how much more floodwaters are coming. They have no idea. They're just hoping beyond hope that it doesn't get high enough that they all drown. Elsewhere in Biloxi, fire station number two was having a similar problem. They were also very convinced they were not going to be flooded. They were 10 feet above sea level and well above the Camille high water line. That assurance did not last long. By 8.30 a.m., water was seeping into the bay floor. The bay is where they keep the fire engines. Firefighters inside tried their hardest to move things up and out of the way so they wouldn't lose anything. They never really thought the water would get high enough that it would actually threaten their lives. That thought, however, was quickly evaporating. Just 15 minutes later, the water went from splashing boots to up to their knees. By 9.30 a.m., the water had reached over their heads and they were scrambling to put on life preservers. In the end, the water would completely submerge all the fire apparatus in the station and they had to seek refuge in, on a fireboat inside. There they hung out and waited for the storm to abate. Now, for a brief humorous aside here, because this is an extremely heavy episode, the source for the Station 2 story tells of what happened as the water level fell. Apparently, one of the firefighters made a brief sighting of a green dog standing on one of the pickup trucks in the parking lot. That's literally, he said he saw a green dog standing on a pickup truck. Now, as you may know, dogs are in fact not green. So everyone inside thought he'd either had a stress break and hallucinated a green dog, or was playing a weird attempt at humor, which probably wouldn't land well after they'd just spent several hours huddled together on a boat, not knowing if the building they were in was going to collapse on them or not, or if they were going to drown inside of a boat, ironically. But there actually was a dog that was green. You see, at some point during the storm, the dog had fallen into a vat of green paint used for fishing nets, and then managed to get out and swam to the fire station and landed on top of the pickup truck. And he happened to see the only green dog that has ever been in existence. Now, earlier up, we talked about the wind. And it was indescribable. As I said, most of the sustained winds along the coast were equivalent of an EF2 tornado. Except for literally hours. Many people who stayed behind in Biloxi and along the coast had only one way to describe the sound of the wind. A freight train. Which you might notice is how tornadoes are always described. Everyone that's talking about going through a tornado always says it sounded like a freight train and then it was gone. Except this time, the freight train lasted for literally hours. People said it sounded like a freight train was coming, and then it was there for two, three, four, 
10 minutes and then it would slowly subside before starting immediately again. For hours, winds were over 130 miles an hour. Many who stayed home had similar instances. The wind taking windows and blowing them into buildings, but not just shattering the glass. Like, it's not blowing the window panes out and that's it. It's full-on ripping the window out of the wall and tossing it against the opposite side. So it's taking it, the frame and all, out of the wall and cracking the wall opening, allowing for wind and rain and floodwaters to get inside through that way. Cars were being picked up off the ground and slammed back down. Chairs and tables and grills and small animals and sheet metal and fence posts and fish were flying through the air as debris. You could walk outside and get hit by a stop sign and be dead. You could walk outside and get hit by your neighbor's dog and be injured. Like, it was absolutely anything that was not nailed down, and some things that were nailed down, were now dangerous, deadly objects, no matter what it was. All over southern Mississippi, the storm was battering everything. Buildings collapsed, and not just single-story building collapses, multi-story apartment buildings were completely collapsing and annihilated. Biloxi's famous casino barges that were floating just off the shore in the bay were picked up by the storm surge and shoved inland, smashing into random buildings and causing major damage. Now, as I said earlier, the storm surge that hit Mississippi has been officially listed as somewhere around 28 feet. Now, that's if you don't talk to anyone who was along the coast in the days and weeks after the storm, because they vehemently disagree with that assessment. Many throughout the area to this day will tell you the storm surge was no less than 30 feet and was probably close to 40 feet. Literally everyone you talk to will tell you that it was nowhere near 28 feet. It was absolutely more than 28 feet. That storm surge placed Biloxi's famous shrimping boats all throughout the city. Like, they were on interstates, miles inland. They were sitting on rooftops. They were sitting on cars. They were sitting on top of houses. They were sitting in people's basements. Fishermen during the storm tied their boats together in a desperate attempt to stay afloat and not lose each other. There are stories of fishermen trying desperately to hold on to their family members' boats and hold them by hand as they went through Hurricane Katrina trying to make sure that if one of them went down, they knew where it was, and they knew how to find them, and they could rescue them. It is truly catastrophic all over the entire southern portion of the state. And a lot of this was unprecedented, especially to the residents of Mississippi. Many of them always compared everything to Hurricane Camille, and I have come back to that over and over and over again in this episode. Hurricane Camille, Hurricane Camille, Hurricane Camille. That was the standard for hurricanes in Mississippi. If you lived through Hurricane Camille, if your house didn't flood during Hurricane Camille, you were guaranteed to make it through any storm. But Hurricane Katrina wasn't just any storm. Now, I need you guys to sit and imagine with me. I want you to close your eyes, sit there, and just move yourself down to the Gulf Coast. I know a lot of you haven't been there and so I'm going to do my best here to describe it for you. I want you to move down and imagine that it's, it's really warm. It's, it's hot. It's extremely humid. And you can smell salt coming off the ocean. You can smell the marshes. You can smell the dead fish. You can smell the salt of the gulf. And it's warm. It's humid. There's palm trees everywhere. And you can also smell gumbo. Because... 
You always got to love a gumbo down there. All right. You got your eyes closed? Just listen. Imagine you're sitting on the coast of Mississippi in the days leading up to Katrina making landfall. You've been through tons of hurricanes before, rode them all out. You grew up on stories of Camille. The high water marks for Camille are all over the city. The height of them are burned into your brain. You know exactly where it rose to in 1969. You can see them in the post office down the street, the fire station down the street. You can see it on the old dockyards down by the Gulf. Your grandparents had told you stories over and over and over again on those late summer nights as the wind is starting to howl and the sky over the Gulf is getting darker and you know the storm is getting closer as everything gets quiet. Oh, don't you worry, child. It'll be nothing like Camille. There will be nothing like Camille. And you feel calm and safe. You know everything will be all right. The water can't reach you here. They've already told you. Water didn't get here during Camille. It won't get here now. You've heard them say it so many times that the cadence of their voice is stuck in your memory. Don't you worry, child. It'll be nothing like Camille. It's Friday, August 26, 2005, and there's a storm brewing off the coast and growing in strength. By Saturday, August 27th, it has strengthened to a Category 5, and they're saying it's going to hit New Orleans, which means by extension, it'll hit Mississippi. Don't you worry, child. It'll be nothing like Camille. And Sunday, you hear it has been downgraded to a Category 3. You decide not to evacuate. That sentence echoing in your brain. Don't you worry, child. It'll be nothing like Camille. You've lived through Category 3 storms. The water won't reach you. It never has before. It didn't reach you your house during Camille. You know you're safe. About 4 a.m. Monday morning, the wind really starts to pick up, which seems unusual. The meteorologist is saying the storm is still out in the Gulf. That's weird. Usually the hurricane winds aren't this early before landfall. But there's no storm surge yet. You're not super worried. You can still see the water a long way off. Five hours later, you're watching out the window as bits of your neighbor's tree are ripped off and blown to who knows where. That's normal hurricane stuff. You've watched that tree get branches torn off before. And down the road, you can see water. You can see one of the high water marks from Camille. It's not even there yet, and the storm has been here for five hours. Don't you worry, child. It'll be nothing like Camille. You walk back to your kitchen to grab something to drink and come back. The power has finally gone out, but you've got some cold stuff sitting out on the counter, just so that, you know, you feel comfortable. It's extraordinarily dark. The wind is howling like a freight train. Something catches your eyes. You get back to the window and look out. An entire chunk of roof is flying through the air and you jump back, startled. That was unexpected. You look down the street to see where it came from and something is off. You start counting houses, looking down. You can see the water, but the high water mark is gone. That Camille high water mark, the one that you've looked at, you've walked past daily, You've driven past daily, the one that you can close your eyes and see, that's burned into your memory, is gone. The water's there. How is that possible? Nothing had ever gone past that mark before. Don't you worry, child. It'll be nothing like Camille, you can hear your grandparents saying in the back of your brain. All of a sudden, you hear a weird noise, almost like a squelching and rushing sound. 
you run to your back door where you thought you heard the noise in your kitchen, and water is coming under the door. That's never happened before. Frantically, you run to the garage and grab the sandbags you have in there to or in order to toss them in front of the door. But by the time you find them and get back to the kitchen, there's a full six inches sitting on the floor. It's up over the tops of your shoes. Don't you worry, child. It'll be nothing like Camille. Five minutes later, that six inches is up to your knees. Your whole first floor is flooded. Your stuff is now floating in three feet of water just 20 minutes later. You make the decision to retreat upstairs. There's no way it can get any higher. Ten minutes later, the water is up to the top of the stairs. A loud shattering sound in the window upstairs explodes. Wind fills the area. Rain is whipping inside. You can feel it beating against you. You can feel the sand flying through the air, stinging your skin. You can smell the ocean, you can smell the salt, and you can smell the rain, and all you can feel is the cold rain smacking you over and over again, that wind beating you against the wall. You get in there and realize you've got nothing to block it coming in, so you try and move to a new room. The second floor is starting to get wet from floodwaters coming up. It's coming up through the carpet. That's never happened before. Don't you worry, child. It'll be nothing like Camille. The water is rising still. You have only one place left to go. The attic. After the attic, you're going to have to try and swim to the roof. As the water upstairs gets to your waist, you decide it's time and open the access to the attic. It's hot. It's dark. It's stinky up there. But it's better than being down here in the floodwaters. Thankfully, you're only there about 30 minutes before the water begins to recede. As it goes down, you can see your neighbors swimming in the floodwaters, sitting on rooftops, cars slowly floating by, a McDonald's sign floating in the water, and some other rec unrecognizable bits of debris just floating by. You can see your neighbor's dog floating by. You can see fish, a boat, just random assortment of things that you don't know where they came from. As the storm waters go down a bit more, a large boat, is now sitting where the house across the street used to be. There's no house there. It's just a boat. It's not even sitting in the house. All of the house is gone. Huge portions of the block that you grew up on are just gone. It looks like the end of the world. You go outside, and you go to find your neighbors, and they're not there. Somehow, miraculously, your house is still standing, but you don't know how. And you don't know what's left of the town. The only thing you can see around you is complete and utter devastation. You start thinking, how do we recover from this? And a thought enters your brain. Your grandparents were right. This was nothing like Camille. The storm surge for Katrina pushed nearly six miles inland and farther along waterways. It was truly catastrophic, but it wasn't just the storm surge. Some areas of Mississippi and Alabama received nearly 13 inches of rain. And then came the last portion of this, the tornado outbreak. Because of course there was a tornado outbreak, Hurricane Katrina was absolutely non-stop terrible things. The first tornado of the outbreak was an, e an F2 in South Florida. Oh, by the way, these are all going to be F scale rather than EF scale because the EF scale didn't start until 2007, and obviously Hurricane Katrina was in 2005, and I'm not going to retcon 
the ratings of her uh, tornadoes back into a modern scale rather than an um, older scale. After that one F2 in South Florida on the 26th of August, it was quiet for a while, at least until it made landfall again on the 29th. The official count for tornadoes in the outbreak from Louisiana all the way up to Pennsylvania was 57 tornadoes, all in range from F0 to F2 in strength. There was one confirmed death from a tornado during the Katrina outbreak during an F2 tornado that touched down near the town of Roopville, Georgia. Georgia, in fact, suffered the most in Katrina tornado outbreak with a grand total of 18 tornadoes, Mississippi had 11, and Alabama was in third with 10. But those are just the officially confirmed tornadoes. You'll remember earlier when I talked about the hurricane winds being an EF2 intensity, that's a problem for the official count of tornadoes because it is extremely likely that as the hurricane ripped apart towns it went over, it spawned more tornadoes over Mississippi and Louisiana, but the damage was so catastrophic in these areas that no one could tell there was a tornado at all. Which is kind of mind-blowing if you think about it. Because when you are estimating a tornado, when you are giving a tornado a rating, it's based on the damage it leaves behind, not the actual wind speed of the tornado. We assume the wind speed based on the damage that is left, based on what we know will do the damage that we are observing. So if you have a tornado that has wiped an entire house completely clean from the slab that it's on, from the concrete slab or its foundation, then it is an EF5 tornado. Hurricane Katrina regularly wiped entire towns off of their slabs. There were entire neighborhoods completely removed and just washed away. Because it's not just the winds for Hurricane Katrina, it's also the storm surge. So as the storm surge pushes in, it's ripping things off, but it's also likely that the Hurricane Katrina was putting down tornadoes that were traveling over the same area. We just can't tell because, A, there was no one out there to witness it, and B, there was no damage left to look at. Because you can't just say, oh, there was an EF5 tornado here because it very well could have been the storm surge. It very well could have been an EF5 tornado. It probably wasn't. Tornadoes tend to be extremely weak in hurricanes, but still, it's so destructive. This, this hurricane was so destructive that you could not tell the difference between what was a tornado and what was the hurricane. And tornadoes are arguably one of the most dangerous and destructive events known to man. After annihilating the coast of Mississippi, Hurricane Katrina began to rapidly weaken and travel northward. It dropped tons of rain over the rest of Mississippi, causing problems all the way throughout the state, flooding throughout the entire state. By the time it reached Tennessee, it dropped down to tropical storm strength and was absorbed into a cold front near the Great Lakes. It caused flooding all the way up into Kentucky with massive amounts of rainfall before being absorbed. In Mississippi, effects from the storm killed 238 people in total and caused about $30 billion in damage. But that's just physical damage. It would take years upon years for the area to recover. It still hasn't recovered. The things that people had to deal with, the things that people saw throughout this entire storm will never be forgotten. There's a story of one of the emergency operation centers in one of the counties along the Mississippi coast where the operations center started to flood, and the people inside were so worried that they weren't going to be able to make it out that they began to write identifying 
information on their arms in order for their bodies to be identified if they died and drowned in the floodwaters and they weren't they had no idea if they were going to make it nearly every emergency operation center along the coast was flooded and that's that there's no organization beyond that thankfully they were able to stay and they were able to organize a emergency response once the storm was gone but there were 911 operators that had to sit there and listen to 911 calls over and over again of people saying we have nowhere to go the floodwaters are coming up we're trapped in the attic they're coming up into the attic what do we do you have to send someone to help us and the 911 operators had to say we have no one to send there's no one that can go out right now we are our hands are tied there's nothing we can do and then there would be silence on the other end of the line and after the storm was over the fire department the police department EMS would go out to those places where those 911 calls came from and they would find the people who had called dead in their homes people drowned in their houses because they had nowhere else left to get up to they couldn't go any higher and the water came over the top of their roof and they drowned inside their attic or they drowned inside their bedroom or they were just washed away in the flood huge huge portions of mississippi were just gone and then that's not including the people that evacuated and then came back to find literally nothing None of their things were there. If they were, they were covered in mud and buried deep. So they would have to sit there and they would have to dig and dig and hope to find just something that was left of the life that they had before Hurricane Katrina came through. They were completely homeless and they were going to have to live in FEMA trailers or straight up move away, which is nearly impossible for many people. It's expensive to move. It's especially expensive to move to a brand new state where you don't have a job, where you don't know anyone. Hurricane Katrina uprooted so many thousands of lives and completely destroyed so many things. And it's not just homes. Miles upon miles of roads were destroyed, either covered in debris or in the case of several bridges in the Mississippi area, completely destroyed and collapsed into the water. It almost annihilated the fishing industry in Mississippi. It absolutely demolished the tourism industry. Hotels were flooded all the way up to the second floor. Windows were washed out. There was water damage everywhere. Some of them would have to be condemned and brought down and rebuilt. And condos, stuff on the shore, restaurants, nightclubs, bars, all completely destroyed and washed away. Things that had massive historical significance were just gone. And it would take, it's still taking years upon years for all of this to come back, for Mississippi to get back to where it was. And it has done a wonderful job coming back from an absolutely cataclysmic storm that has had almost no comparison since. And with that, we have reached the end of this episode, episode two of the Hurricane Katrina series. I hope you guys enjoyed it and learned something. As always, you can follow me on Twitter, you can follow me on TikTok, you can follow me on Instagram. I'm attempting to start a YouTube that is not going super well because I don't know what I'm doing, but I am trying. At some point, I will redo all of my episodes and upload them as YouTube with photos and all of that. So look on for that. I don't know when that's going to happen. 
but it is a project that I will be working on. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed it. You guys are awesome listeners. Thank you all. As always, stay safe, and remember to check your smoke detector batteries.